The Moth is brought to you by Progressive, home of the Name Your Price tool. You say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. It's easy to start a quote. Visit Progressive.com to get started. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA. Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Calling all educators. Join the Moth this summer for the Virtual Moth Teacher Institute. We're not your average teacher training. Forget what you think you know about professional development. At MTI, we're all about infusing your classroom with the magic of storytelling. MTI is for 5th to 12th grade teachers, whether you're looking to fine-tune your strategies or you're a curious newcomer eager to learn more about moth storytelling. Picture this, a new community of teachers all over the country. Vibrant discussions, engaging activities, live storytelling shows, access to moth curriculum, and so much more. This summer, MTI will take place from August 5th to the 9th. Applications close on June 23rd. Visit themoth.org forward slash MTI to apply today. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour, and I'm Fonzo Lakaya. And I'm Aliza Cosme. We're the co-hosts of the Moth's new podcast, Grown, a show about what it means to grow up. But this week, we're your hosts here on the Moth Radio Hour, and today we'll be listening to stories about being stuck in the in-between. On Grown, we say you're never fully grown. There will always be those in-between moments in our lives, and how we navigate that time and space helps shape who we are. But there are many ways to feel like we're living in a gray area. Take our first storyteller, Carl Cannon. Carl told this story in 2016 at the Cooper Union in New York City. Here's Carl. I remember the first time I walked into the Fort Leavenworth Maximum Security Prison. No. Not as an inmate, (laughs) but as a military policeman recently assigned to prison duty for the first time. It made me think back to a time when I was 19 years old and I raised this, my right hand, and I joined the U.S. Army to become a military policeman. This was 10 years later. 10 years later, I was a damn good military policemen who didn't want prison duty. Why? Maybe because what made me good had some of the people occupying that institution and I didn't want a reunion. (laughs) So you gotta know I did everything I could to get out of that duty. I even took an extra 30-day leave hoping that at the end of which the Army would change its mind. 
When I returned from that leave, the sergeant major gave me two options. He said, one, you take your ass down in that prison. Two, or face a court martial. <laughs> Suddenly, prison duty didn't seem that bad. So I went into the four-wing housing unit with my trainer, a 15-year veteran by the name of Pierce. When we walked into that housing unit, I was stunned. They weren't locked down. They were all out and about. And do I need to repeat? I said maximum security military prison? That means Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard. 40% of that population was, being, was there doing a life sentence for murder. 100% of that population had been trained to kill. It's arguably one of the most dangerous prisons on the planet. And they weren't locked down. I was a little nervous. <laughs> it's not an understatement. We went into the guard cage and we, we, we were debriefed by the outgoing 12-hour shift. When they left, Pierce instructed me, go check the housing unit. I'm like, he said, look, sarcastically, rookie, you're in the housing unit. It has five floors, 50 cells on each floor, 25 face out to the right, 25 face out to the left. It's like a warehouse. In the back of each floor is an unauthorized area for inmates. There's a clipboard. Sign off on it proving that you check for trouble. Never forget that I went out into the population. I was there to observe the inmates. Moving amongst that population, I was quickly aware that they were observing me. I remember going by tables where they were playing cards and they would slap the cards down on the table and then look at me, all of them. They would slap the dominoes down on the table and then give me the look. It took me about an hour to finish that check, those housing unit checks. When I returned to the guard cage, Pierce looked at me and he said sarcastically, Rookie, where you been? I said, I was checking the housing unit like you told me. He said, look, Rookie, all you have to do is go around the third floor, find that clipboard. There's a stairwell back there that the inmates can't use. Use the stairwell, go up to the fourth floor. Use that stairwell, go up to the fifth floor. You can be up to the eighth floor and back in this guard cage in 10 minutes. It's called a shortcut, rookie. He was so condescending, I wanted to hit him in his mouth. But that option, Sounded better than what I'd just been through. About 10 o'clock that night, he gives me this training script to read over the loudspeaker. I looked, and it was like music to me. I read it. It's a lockdown, lockdown, all inmates, lockdown. He said, when you close the tears, when you shut the tears down, shut them down in sequence, start with the eighth floor. I said, why the eighth floor? He said, that's where the rookie inmates are. 
He said, when you close it, you hit these two buttons and all 50 cells on that floor will close at the same time. It was actually the first time it actually sounded like I thought prison was going to sound. Eighth floor, boom, those cages closing. Seventh floor, boom. Fifth floor, boom. Third floor, yay. They're locked down. I'm safe. A short time later, an inmate's coming around the third floor towards the guard cage from the third floor right side. He's wearing a towel, he's carrying a toothbrush. I looked at Pierce, Pierce gives me the look. What you gonna do? So I did what I thought Pierce would do. I cursed at the inmate. What the fuck you doing out of your cell? He surprised me, started cursing back at me. So now we're having this war of words, curse words, except his curse words were better than mine. I was losing the battle of words. So I went back to a training script that Pierce had given me, and I shouted, go to the bench. When you send an inmate to the bench, in the old penitentiary, you are effectively sending them to the hole. That's the jail within the jail. And truth be told, I could have let that inmate back in his cell. But I'll be honest, I was power tripping. I was trying to impress Pierce. A few minutes later, the guard commander came into the housing unit, entered our guard cage. He said, Cannon, what happened? I lied. I knew the guard commander knew I was lying. He looked past me at Pierce, and he said, Pierce, tell me what happened. And I'm thinking, oh. And then Pierce stunned me, and he said, that's exactly how it happened, sir. And I'm like, whoa. That's when I started to understand the principle of us versus them. Us being the guards, them being the inmates, them being wrong no matter what we did. Because Pierce backed, in me, backed me, I started lining up with us. I got a little size on me. So anytime one of us were told no by an inmate, they called me. I was the best at turning a no into a yes. And because I lined up with us, I promoted up pretty rapidly in the system. Less than a year later, I was in charge of the shoe. That's a special housing unit, the whole. Unlike upstairs, where everybody is out and about, in the hole, you're locked down 24-7, maybe an hour in a cage. I had 16 guards. I'm in charge. Four of them ran the guard cage. Each other guard had 25 cells assigned to them. They reported to me. I got a call that the inmates had a revolt on one of our floors because we had us down there. The inmates had trashed the tier. That means they had blocked the toilets. There was feces, urine, water, food, garbage everywhere. I went down to restore order. I passed cell 138. The inmate inside said, CO, can I talk to you? I said, what you got? He said, CO, I want you to know I didn't do this. And I believed him. 
I said, okay, don't worry about it. Clean up best you can. I'll handle this. About 4.30 a.m., it was time for the breakfast carts to come into that very floor. It was my job to open the tunnel door to let those breakfast carts in. I had ordered that the lights come on in that housing unit. I was walking towards that door when I went past cell 138 and through my peripheral. He was hanging. I get on my radio immediately. The guard assigned at that row of cells was on his radio. We were shouting into it, open 138, open 138. The cell door starts to move open slowly. I'm trying to muscle it open faster. As soon as there was enough of an opening, I ran into that cell. I hoisted the body up. The guard jumps on top of the toilet. He unties the sheet. There wasn't enough room to do CPR in the cell, so we laid him out on the floor in front of the row of cells. It was my job to do the mouth-to-mouth. The guard was going to do the chest compressions. I will never forget when I put my mouth on the inmate's mouth, how cold it was. We where we had to keep the CPR going until the medics came and pronounced it one way or another. It was 10 minutes before they arrived. During that time frame, during that commotion, the other inmates on that floor woke up, came to the front of their cells. They saw us doing the CPR. He was so cold. They started yelling at us, killers. He's so cold. Killers. I got mad. No, not at the inmates. I got mad at me. I knew somebody took a shortcut. I knew we had all been trained to take shortcuts. There was no way they were checking his cell, and he was so cold. I left the prison that morning mad determined never to return. The next day, I get a call from the captain. The ca- I told the captain, I do what you gotta do. I don't care, court-martial me. I'm not going back. He said, Cannon, you're gonna be all right. I'm not worried about you. He said, you've been through worse. You've seen worse. You will get through this. He said, where I'm concerned, Cannon, is the men that work for you. If you don't come back, the amount of respect they have for you, I'm worried about what it'll do to them. And I thought about that. And I thought about going back. And I thought about that inmate in cell 138 who I learned had gotten a Dear John letter that day. That inmate who was living in a life of despair who was depressed, whose last statement to me was, I'm innocent, and that was important to him. I thought about those men that respected me, and so a couple days later, I did go back, but I went back different. 
I went back with a battle cry called respect. And respect meant listening to people, listening to the inmates and their stories and their regrets. When I listened, I learned that most inmates, if they could go back in time to that first incident that led to the second incident, knowing what they know now, I learned that they would not repeat the same act. I also learned that inmates are people, human beings, and human beings deserve respect too. So I started using words that were different. Please, thank you. And because we started using those words, the tone between the inmates and the guards began to change to a tone of mutual respect. I retired from the military and I left the Bureau of Prisons. It's been over 10 years since I've been gone, but I have never forgotten those stories. I have never forgotten that young man in cell 138. And I take those stories today. And I support at-risk kids. I, put your eyes on me, I was the best at keeping them in. Today, I'm a part of you. I'm one of the best at keeping them out. Thank you, and God bless. That was Carl Cannon. Carl has continued his work with at-risk kids. He launched the Elite Outreach Program in 2006 in his hometown of Peoria, Illinois. Elite employs ex-felons to assist educators with supporting youth who are overcoming difficult circumstances. The results have been a 70 to 88% rise in academic standing. Carl's autobiography titled Full Canon, co-authored with Lance Ziedrich, is available on Amazon. For Carl, being pushed in the gray space was a good thing because it helped him confront his biases, made him realize it isn't always us versus them, and has led him to the work he does now. Fonzo, can you remember a time where you found yourself stuck in a gray space? Yeah. I find myself in the gray space a lot. I see myself as an empath, and I think a lot about how people view me and the decisions I make and the choices I make. And so it helps me change perspective. In a moment, a man moves across the world to meet his birth family when the Moth Radio Hour continues. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. Support for The Moth comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time 
for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash moth. That's odoo.com slash moth. Odoo, modern management made simple. For over a century, Brooks has been propelled by a never-ending curiosity with how humans move. It drives their every decision and every innovation because they believe movement is the key to feeling more alive. And we're all moving towards something. It could be to run a 5K and raise money for a cause you believe in, to take the lead on your family's annual Thanksgiving Day hike, or, for me, I love how clear my head feels after a long run. But living in Brooklyn means I'm running on cement, so my head feels great, but my knees, not so much. That's why I'm so happy to have the cushioning of the Brooks Ghost Max shoes that let me go a little bit further and feel a little bit clearer. And with my new reflective run visible vest, I can chase this high before the sun is even up and kickstart my day. So let's run there with gear and experiences specifically designed to take you to that place, whether it's a headspace, a feeling, or a finish line. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm your host this time, Aliza Cosme. And I'm your other host, Fonzo Lacayo. In this episode, we're talking about being caught in the in-between world. Fonzo, we've spoken in the past quite a lot about how being brought up surrounded by a mix of cultures from our parents and our communities has impacted our lives, and often in a positive way. How do you think that being caught between multiple worlds has made you a more whole person? Well, I feel it's definitely, in a way, a double-edged sword. In one hand, you're not fully immersed into one culture or one place, So you may reach out and find what fits best for you or doesn't fit best for you. So in that self-exploration, in my opinion, can be a very long journey, but a worthwhile one. Well, like we heard in Carl's story, realizing that the world isn't just black and white can be overwhelming, but it can also help us learn more about ourselves. That is totally true, especially for our next storyteller, James Han Matson. James told this story at a main stage in Traverse City, where we partnered with City Opera House and Interlochen Public Radio. Here's James. Live at the Moth in Michigan. When I was 17, my North Dakotan parents sat me down at the dining room table and showed me a letter from my birth family. I didn't know how to respond to this uh, because I tried so hard to erase that part of myself. I'd been adopted at age three from Korea and I'd, I, didn't, I didn't really know anything Asian, let alone Korean. And at school, I often got teased because of my race. So I distanced myself from my race, uh, seeing Asian as something to be mocked and ridiculed. It got so difficult that I had, tr- I had trouble looking in the mirror. What I saw wasn't what I wanted to see, uh, so I avoided the image altogether. Well, my parents, they sensed that something was wrong, and so they actually wrote a letter to my adoption agency, thinking that um, the, the problem stemmed from those first few years of my life, those unknown years. Well, my birth family actually wrote back, and so at the dining room table, my mom hands me this letter along with these pictures And I'm stunned, Uh, but I take the letter and I take the pictures and I look at the pictures and I think, these people look weird. They don't look anything like me. They can't possibly be 
related to me. I read the letter and it says that uh, I, have, <clears throat> I have three birth siblings, two sisters and a brother. It says that both of my birth parents are deceased. It also says that I have a birth grandmother and this is the person who actually physically gave me away. What had happened is that after my, uh, after my mother's death, uh, my grandmother had uh, gotten custody of all four children and she just couldn't handle it. And since I was the youngest, uh, I was the one who was given up. Well, my mom leans into the table and she says, isn't this amazing? And I don't really know what to say. I don't really respond. Uh, because I feel like this is just another part of me that doesn't belong. And um, besides, you know, all these, th these people come from a land full of Asians, and I couldn't imagine anything worse. <laughs> but still, I take the letter, and I take the pictures, and I stuff them in a drawer, and I don't think about them for a while. <clears throat> well... I, I get older, I go to college, I have experiences uh, that open myself up to my own race. And um, so I become curious about my birth family. I find the letter and I write one of my own. And what transpires is uh, this ongoing communication between myself and my, my English-speaking birth sister, Mi Kyung. And she is the closest to me in age. What also happens uh, as a result of this ongoing back and forth is that this new identity develops inside of me. I am a Korean person, I think. Korean language, Korean culture, Korean food, it's all embedded in my DNA and it just needs to be unlocked. It's the American side of me that's a sham and if I go to Korea, I know that I'll be welcome with open arms. I'll finally find a place where I belong. And so, at age 31, I decide to take the plunge and move to Korea. <clears throat> well, the, the flight is pretty grueling. It's 14 hours. So it's, uh, it's, it's a delight to see Mi Kyung's face smiling at me at the airport. We hug, and it's like old friends meeting because we've been in communication for so long. Well, I stay with her, and uh, after I get over my jet lag, um, she says that she's invited the other siblings over, and this makes me very nervous because I haven't had any direct communication with them. Well, first to come is Mi Hyun, and she's my elder, elder sister, and she's this very energetic, very vivacious woman, and she just comes barreling through, and uh, she, <clears throat> takes one look at me and she just bursts into tears. She says, Jung Hyun, Jung Hyun is my Korean name. She says, Jung Hyun, we have the same face. We have the same face. She takes my hand and we go into the bathroom and we look in the mirror, something that I hated doing as an adolescent, but something that I now find emboldening. And we compare eyes and eyebrows and cheeks and cheekbones, and they're a match, it's remarkable. A few minutes later, my brother comes in, Kwang Hyun, and he doesn't look anything like me. He's tall, he's thin, he has a really long face, 
And as soon as he sees me, his face cracks, and he has to leave the apartment. Well, when he comes back, his eyes are all red and puffy, and he opens his arms, and I fall into his embrace, and it's one of the safest places I've ever been. Well, as is Korean custom, my siblings give me a gift, and this gift is a gray t-shirt with a whole bunch of nonsensical English phrases written all over it. <laughs> Across the top are the words, in big letters, are the words, premium stylish man clothing. <laughs> I don't like this shirt. <laughs> But they do, so I put it on, and that afternoon, we talk, and uh, the conversation veers towards grandmother, and it's decided that I need to go see her. I need to meet the person who actually gave me away. So we all pile into my brother's car, uh, and we head to his apartment where grandmother lives. And on the way there, my heart is racing, and my stomach is fluttering, and I just don't know if I can do, do this, you know? I don't know if I can actually go see the person who changed my life so dramatically. When I get there, I don't know if I can go through with it, and I tell them, but they gently urge me in, and they, I, finally, I finally walk in. I walk down this long hall, and to the left, there's a small bedroom. And on the floor of the bedroom is my grandmother. My grandmother is just looking at the floor. Mi Kyung comes up beside me, And she says, Grandmother, this is Jung Hyun. Grandmother looks up, and at first she's very confused, but then dawning crosses her face, and as soon as it does, she crawls across the floor because she can't walk. And she, when she's at my feet, she just looks up at me, opens her arms, and lets out the most terrific scream. Well, I kneel down into her embrace, and she starts batting at my back and scratching at my shoulders and screaming, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I don't want to be there. I feel frustrated. I think of all the ways that she's upended my life. But I also feel, I also feel the, uh, the remorse in her shudders And so, I end up holding her tight. Well, despite all these dramatic episodes, I do enjoy spending time with my birth family. And I enjoy being in Korea. I like the fact that I blend in. I like the fact that in Asia, there's no such thing as Asian. <laughs> And I like the fact that, you know, my birth family just wants to be a part of my life. And so I think maybe I can make this a home. But then the food, the food, which I love, but that's covered in red pepper. And this does a number on my Midwestern stomach. And I developed the beginnings of an ulcer. Also, Korean dramas and K-pop, while Entertaining just don't do it for me. 
and I seek out more Western entertainment. But most importantly, every time I open my mouth and speak my remedial Korean, the person on the other end shuts down. They either say nothing or switch to English or just walk away. And this happens over and over and over, and so my days become this series of rejections, both on my part and on theirs. And this is very difficult for me because here I was two years in and I hadn't really made any progress in becoming a Korean person. But still, I wanted to try. So on Chuseok, Chuseok is a holiday that um, a, a lot of uh, expats um, compared to Thanksgiving. Um, we're all at my brother's apartment, uh, my siblings, my siblings' kids, and my grandmother. And we have this delicious meal, and after the meal, my brother's son comes up to me, he's 10 years old, and he uh, starts speaking English. And I find this very endearing because uh, he hasn't really spoken to me this whole time, he's been too shy. Well, he goes and plays with his cousin, and um, I lean into Mi Kyung and I say, listen, he's doing a, a really good job. If you want me to help tutor him, I would be more than happy to. And I get stopped mid-sentence because from the corner of the room, my grandmother is falling into hysterics. She's pounding the floor and she's saying, you are a Korean person, speak Korean. You are a Korean person, speak Korean. The room falls silent, and I feel this well of anger in my chest, and I, I have to leave the apartment. And I know then that I, I'm not Korean enough for Korea, and I, I might not be Korean enough for this family. <clears throat> uh, that, that starts the beginning of the end of my time in Korea, and I leave just a couple months after that. When I get back, everything is much easier. Um, daily interactions don't take on any significance because everything is familiar and relationships are just much easier to forge. Um, but the moment I get back, I once again feel conspicuous. And I realize that in America, I will always be a hyphenated individual, not simply an American, but always an Asian American. My grandmother died in 2013, and I'd had some time to distance myself from it, so I wasn't angry anymore. I knew that what she'd said had come from a place of immense guilt. But I did grieve. I grieved not just for her, but for myself, for what could have been, and for perhaps what should have been. Today, I don't consider myself fully Korean, but I don't consider myself fully American, really, either. I see myself as a complicated combination of the two. That combination used to repulse me, and I'll be honest, sometimes those feelings do come creeping back. But I'm doing much better now. I am still in contact with my birth family, although over the years those relationships have cooled. What matters to me now is that I'm living a current life that I've confronted my past, and that I've accepted it with all of its ambiguities. And because I've done this, 
When I look in the mirror now, I don't see something to be mocked or ridiculed. I see this interesting bundle of complexity. And because the world is this infinitely complex place, my face fits right in. Thank you. That was James Han Matson. He's the author of two novels, The Lost Prayers of Ricky Graves and Reprieve, which was named the best book of 2021 by Harper's Bazaar, Esquire, and more. And it was featured on the Today Show. Keep an eye out for his upcoming novel, The Grand Imposters, from William Murrow HarperCollins. Aliza, this week, I met with James to talk about his story and asked him about the experience he had in college that, as he said, opened him up to his own race. College was very eye-opening for me in the sense that um, it was the first time where I had a group of Asian friends. And I didn't really think that was going to happen ever. But then in college, I ended up meeting one of my best friends who was Malaysian. And he was an international student and he introduced me to other international students. Because I was surrounded by so much Asian-ness, it just became very normal for me. And this is what opened myself up to my own race and realizing, you know, that I am I am an Asian person and uh, this is how I'm going to be viewed in the world and this is how, you know, these are, these are the lenses through which I will see the world. To see photos of James and his birth family, visit themoth.org. In a moment, the road to the Miss America pageant when the Moth Radio Hour continues. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. Seeing people who look like you out in the world telling stories generates connection and inspiration. As a young woman, being exposed to Black people in the arts and media helped open me up to a world of possibilities. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's hosts are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. You'll hear stories of joy, resilience, and empowerment, all told from a unique Black perspective. Whether you're listening to a story about the history of Juneteenth on Code Switch, or getting an up-close and personal interview with the likes of Tracy Ellis Ross on It's Been a Minute, a connection is forged. Not only for African Americans, but for anyone who wants a window into our world and the country that we all share. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Fonzo Lacayo. And I'm Aliza Cosme. We've arrived at our last story in this hour about not quite belonging. On our podcast, Grown, We explore the in-between space between being a teenager and adult. But the truth is, this is something people encounter in all phases of their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And the older I get, the more I realize that we're all just trying to find our place in the world. Or being told by the world who we should be, which was the case for our next storyteller. Nicole Kelly told this story at a moth main stage in Iowa City, where we were presented by Iowa Public Radio. From the Englert Theater, here's Nicole. 
Right out of college, I decided to enter the Miss Iowa competition. I had never done a pageant in my entire life, but I had remembered watching those glamorous girls on TV growing up, and I had decided to prove that I could be just like them. So I had three months to prepare before I would go up against 30 other girls from all over the state of Iowa. And if I won, I would win my ticket to compete at the coveted Miss America pageant in Atlantic City. But I had no idea where to start. I needed to find myself an expert in pageantry. And I found that expert in a sassy woman from the Jersey Shore. She was intensely direct. And she had a reputation for training fierce, strong pageant competitors. She honestly was like my Michael Caine from Miss Congeniality. <laughs> so we got to work. We booked open conference room spaces, and in these quiet moments under fluorescent lights, she would teach me the very important things like the right amount of hip sway to use when walking in a swimsuit on stage. Which, by the way, is enough to be confident and sassy, but not enough to be overly sexy. <laughs> we studied together. We had makeup contouring lessons together. She taught me to say yes instead of yeah, <laughs> and taught me the latest sparkly styles that were currently in on the pageant scene. When the week-long Miss Iowa competition began, I started the competition in a private interview with the judges, where I think I perfectly executed saying yes instead of yeah. <laughs> Up next on stage were the preliminary was the preliminary competition. And this was a roller coaster of emotions. But after the first night, they called my name as the winner of the Swimsuit Preliminary Award winner. <laughs> the judges had picked me for walking sassy but not too sexy in my five inch heels and bikini. The next night was the, was the talent portion of competition and my stomach was churning with fear for this part. You see, I had chosen to sing my favorite song, Defying Gravity, from my favorite musical, Wicked, but that is a freaking hard song to sing. <laughs> you see, the Broadway musical, Wicked, came out when I was in middle school, and I was obsessed. My poor parents would drive me hours to see whichever touring production of the show was closest to my middle-of-nowhere hometown. My pageant dress was perfectly beaded with all green beads, a nod to my favorite character, the Wicked Witch of the West. As they called my name, I walked out into the shining spotlight, took center stage, and looked out into the dark audience. The track began and the song came out of me with ease. I felt like my heart was flying with every note. Before I knew it, we had made it to the end of the competition. And all 30 girls came out on stage for the final crowning of Miss Iowa. I had made the top five cut. And surrounded by a sea of nervous girls in hairspray, I took a silent breath to hold <laughs> as the competition host began to announce the final ballot. Fourth runner-up. He didn't say my name. Third runner-up, also not me. Second runner-up. He didn't say my name. Suddenly, it was just me and one other girl standing, holding each other, shaking, waiting to see who would be awarded the title of Miss Iowa. The audience was silent. You could have heard a pin drop, and I could feel my heart beating all the way up to my ears. And then he said my name. 
I won. <laughs> yeah, I won. But let me tell you, I was in complete shock. I was barely able to laugh or cry or even talk. And before I knew it, they were putting a crown on top of my head, giving me a sparkly sash, handing me a bouquet of flowers, handing me keys to a car I would get to drive for a year for free. And then suddenly, a person honestly brought out a fur coat and put that on me too. <laughs> it was a whirlwind of emotion. There were hugs and photo flashes and confetti for hours. <laughs> I was truly on cloud nine. I had done it. The next morning, with only about three hours of sleep under my belt due to all of that excitement, I arrived at a local hotel conference room to get into hair and makeup for my official Miss Iowa headshot. I was busy smiling for a flashing camera while a person stood beside and held a fan so my hair would blow just right in the picture when a smiling TV news reporter and cameraman arrived for my first interview as Miss Iowa. The interview went great. I told them how excited I was to have won the title and how unbelievable it felt to be going to Miss America in just three short months. Later that night, my parents and I gathered around the hotel TV to watch the interview I had given earlier in the day. The anchorman entering the piece smiled and said, Last night, a woman with a disability won the crown of Miss Iowa and is headed to Miss America. My heart sank. As I watched the package begin, I watched them cut away from my face, focusing in on my torso, zooming in closer and closer and closer until the entire end of my missing arm filled the whole hotel room screen. You see, I was born with my full right arm, but only half of my left arm. Nothing else was different or wrong, I just came out without my left hand. And so my parents had always raised me to follow the lead of my older brother and sister, and I participated in everything. I was a lifeguard at the local YMCA, I had played trombone and band, and I even threw a perfect inning as a pitcher in junior league softball. Yeah. But I was always aware of my difference. When going off to summer camps, I knew that I always had to come up with funny jokes about having one hand in order to make my other cabin mates comfortable. Strangers would always point and whisper in amazement if I ever had to stop to tie my shoes in public. As I watched that camera zoom in closer and closer, the larger the image got, the smaller I felt. It was like I was a prop in my own story. It was as if the reporter was saying, isn't this sweet, kind girl lucky? It made me feel utterly stripped and violated. Don't get me wrong, I expected to speak publicly about having one hand if I had won the title of Miss Iowa. But that is not what we had talked about in the interview. That was their voice, their packaging, turning my story into pure inspiration. I had won the title expecting it to prove how very like the other girls I was, and yet here was this first story only focused on my difference. In shock, I turned my head to my parents. I opened my mouth to try to speak, but nothing came out. My parents quickly jumped in to try to console me. This was just one bad news reporter and just one bad news station. 
To my complete horror, hours later, every news outlet around the world had picked up on my story. My inspiring story had spread like wildfire, and everybody wanted to talk to the disabled girl going to Miss America. I got requests to be a guest on The View. The Today Show asked me to interview with them, and Jay Leno even used me as a setup to one of his jokes in his opening monologue. The entire world was telling me that they were both shocked and inspired that someone like me could win a ticket to compete at Miss America. It didn't matter if I had interviewed best, sang well, or worked really hard to have rock-hard abs in my swimsuit. (laughs) It was clear that I had not won the title of Miss Miss Iowa, but my disability had. I continued to receive a multitude of interview requests, and out of complete anger, I said no to them all. Three months later, I arrived in Atlantic City for Miss America, feeling utterly defeated. I continued to receive a magnitude of attention, and I hated being used as a marketing tool for the impending live telecast, because I was always the prop, and it was always stories of pure inspiration. But I still wanted to be crowned Miss America. I still wanted to prove that I could do it. I still wanted to make my entire extended family and the three busloads of people who had come all the way from my tiny hometown to watch me compete proud. I I still saw this as a chance to prove that I was no different. I saw this as another chance to set the record straight. I didn't win the title of Miss America. And I returned to Iowa ready to crawl into my shell. I wanted to be left alone. I wanted to stew in my anxiety and my depression. Everything about that experience had felt so out of my control. A couple of weeks later, while I was still very much in hiding, an email hit my inbox from a woman in Long Island. It read, seeing you on the Miss America pageant My husband and I started crying. We held each other as we watched this beautiful, confident, sweet girl strutting her stuff up on the stage. This was the sign that got us through the initial shock of learning that our unborn baby girl was going to be born with one hand. And now we can't wait to welcome her and hug her and show her that she too can do anything. I was so focused on the validation of my able-bodied friends, that I had completely denied the opportunity to proudly step up and represent others like me. I was so afraid of my arm determining how other people saw me that I let my rejection of it do the same. And this was just one of hundreds of emails that flooded my inbox from families across the country, all living with children with one hand. You know, in my favorite musical, Wicked, at the end of the first act, the Wicked Witch of the West actually meets the Wizard of Oz. When she meets him, she finds that he cannot magically fix the problem that she has of the way that the world perceives her green skin. With this realization, she proudly steps into her true self and fully embraces the way that the world perceives her. 
I realized for the first time that I had gone into this competition all wrong. Instead of my messaging being trying to be how very like everyone I really was, I should have been proudly embracing the reality of my difference. So instead of becoming Miss America, I became queen to an entire group of parents and kids desperately looking to change the perception around disability, to change the negativity I myself had fallen victim to. I think my favorite character from Wicked says it best. I'm through accepting limits, cause someone says they're so. Some things I cannot change, but till I try, I'll never know. Thank you. That was Nicole Kelly. Nicole spends much of her time in advocacy work. She's the co-creator and co-host of the podcast Disarming Disability, which aims to break down the stigma surrounding disability. Nicole has spoken at schools, universities, and corporations across the country about disability equity and inclusion. That was our final story for this hour. But before we go, Aliza, what's a time you felt caught between worlds? I guess the real question is, when's a time I don't feel caught between worlds? I've really come to realize that I'm not willing to squeeze myself into boxes anymore. We don't have to fit into a box that the world tells us we need to. We can be many different things at once, and we can give ourselves permission to change and grow. And I'm really excited to explore this topic even more with you on our new podcast from The Moth, Grown. The show premieres February 8th, and we hope you'll listen along. Yeah, we really do. Check it out. Check out the podcast. And that's it for this episode of The Moth Radio Hour. We hope you'll tune in next week. And that's the story from The Moth. Your hosts this hour were Elisa Cosme and Fonzo Lacayo, the hosts of The Moth's upcoming podcast called Grown. This episode of the Moth Radio Hour was produced by me, Jay Allison, and Catherine Burns, along with Eliza Infonso and Emily Couch. Co-producer is Vicki Merrick. The stories were directed by Meg Bowles, Jody Powell, and Chloe Salmon. The rest of the Moth's leadership team includes Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Janess, Jennifer Hickson, Kate Tellers, Jennifer Birmingham, Marina Kluche, Leanne Gully, Suzanne Rust, Brandon Grant, Inga Gladowski, Sarah Jane Johnson, and Aldi Casa. Special thanks to Melissa Brown, Mark Solinger, Anna Stern, and Devin Wilson. Most Stories Are True is remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from Moondog and Steve Fawcett. We receive funding from the National Endowment for the Arts. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching us your own story, and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org.